Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Education Foundation. Committed to helping more Mississippians obtain post-secondary credentials, college certificates, and degrees that lead to employment. More information about Woodward Hines Education Foundation at woodwardhines.org. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, September 22nd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, state agencies are laying out their financial needs to a state budget committee now. Find out how much some agencies are requesting. A national perspective on Jackson Public Schools' possible state takeover. Hear from an expert on what's making us sneeze and cough and what to do about it as summer gives way to the autumn season. And our state of obesity coverage continues as a personal trainer and chef weigh in on what's fit to eat. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. State agency heads are returning to the state capitol today as they present their proposed budgets to Mississippi legislators. The cash-strapped agencies are making their case for more money before the state's joint legislative budget committee. The requests include more funding to hire auditors for the Department of Revenue and more social workers for child protection services. Another trooper school, more Mississippi Bureau of Investigation agents, and shoring up the state's crime lab are top priorities for the Department of Public Safety. Safety. Commissioner Marshall Fisher tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the agency needs $20 million more next year. We're asking for a little more than a $20 million increase. That's overall for all the 13 different divisions. It includes the Highway Patrol, MBN, Crime Lab, and other smaller, smaller agencies have a little bit of a bump. We don't think it's anything excessive because uh, we're understaffed. We got trooper schools starting at the end of next month, and by the time they get out, it's a, roughly a five-month academy, and they've got 12 weeks on the road with a uh, training officer. So around the end of May, first of June, before they actually hit the streets. How many troopers do you have now on the streets? Four, well, we have 467 troopers altogether, but that's not all. Those are not on the street. That counts supervisors, people in MBI. There's 80 to 100 agents in MBI. We're short in some districts. We've had occasion where we had a trooper had to come from Troop C all the way to Natchez or Adams County to work a wreck because they were shorthanded. Brookhaven's been, Troop M's been shorthanded, and we've had to actually send some Troop C people down there to relieve them on some of their shifts. How many more do you need? Well, we're slotted for 650. During Katrina, we had 540 that responded to the coast, and that was not enough. We had people coming in from all over the place helping us, as you recall, just like they're doing now. But we'd like to fill every one of those slots. Thank you so much for speaking with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. The Mississippi Department of Education is seeking to fully fund the state's current education formula. State Superintendent Carrie Wright tells MPB's Desiree Frazier more funding is needed for programs that are working. 
You talked about uh, where you want to see increases in education. Can you comment on that a little bit? Yes, absolutely. We've asked for increases where we are seeing uh, increase in student achievement. So you want to, that's the reason the whole focus was on a return on investment. We're seeing tremendous growth with our pre-K and kindergarten. With So the whole early learning collaboratives are working. So we've asked for an additional $6 million there. Uh, we're seeing a lot of improvement with our literacy coaches. So we have asked for additional money there. Uh, we've, we're asking for additional money for professional development because that's what's making it happen in the classroom for our teachers. So all of our asks are as a result of the outcomes that we're getting. In terms of the possible revamping of education, are you concerned that asking for more money for MAP will conflict with what the legislature says they're trying to do to change the funding formula? No, I don't think so. I think that, you know, we've been working hand-in-hand hand with the legislature over the past few years um, around all of this, and I think that they're seeing the results that we're getting, and um, I think that they're committed to trying to help the districts as much as they possibly can, as, um, as are we. So, thank you so much. You're welcome. Lieutenant Governor Tate Reeves tells MPB's Desiree Frazier he thinks the directors are making progress. Well, I appreciate the folks coming in and talking about their uh, request this year. You know, when I first started uh, as Lieutenant Governor, we had uh, $1.2 billion more requested than what the previous year's budget was. This year it's about $600 million, and so I, I think we're making progress. I like to be optimistic about uh, having some agency directors that understand where we're trying to go and that we're not going to spend money that we don't have and not come in here and just ask for things that you know you're not going to get. Let's be realistic about uh, a budget. We're very, we're very focused on ensuring that we're efficient in the way in which we expend taxpayer dollars. And I believe strongly that we work for the taxpayers. We don't work for the bureaucracy that has been created for the last 200 years, this being our bicentennial year, of course. And so uh, I'm encouraged that we're, we're seeing having good dialogue. I'm trying to find out which agencies are actually being efficient with taxpayer dollars. I'm hearing some really positive stories. Uh, we're seeing more and more people talk about outcomes and less and less about inputs, and I think that's something that's critically important. So, You're hearing uh, some of the needs. Uh, DOR needs more auditors. Uh, uh, the Department of Education wants to fully fund the MAEP. Uh, your thoughts on where you are interested in putting money? in this next budget? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously there's always uh, requests that come before us, but what I've been hearing a, a lot of today is, is uh, the various agency heads talking about the good things that are going on, the fact that uh, DOR has been able to hire a number of revenue officers that has led to increased collections, uh, the fact that the Department of Education was able to uh, talk about the success that kids are having across the state in terms of their testing results, in terms of graduation rates are at 82.3%. Six years ago, they were at 70.5%. So I think we need to uh, continue to, to talk about the improvements that are being made in our public educational system, the improvements that are being made in the efficiencies of government, and, and I think that's something that we ought to be real happy about. The drug issue, uh, that's really taking mm -hmm. a toll on child protection services. What do you think you can do to help that agency? Yeah, well, the opioid epidemic has really led to some real unique challenges. Um, unfortunately, it's not unique to Mississippi. It's true in every state across the country, and it's something that uh, we're continuing to look at and trying to find ways to, to make improvements. We passed legislation last year that's going to uh, improve things in terms of uh, handing out the uh, drug that can counteract an overdose, and, and hopefully so we'll see fewer people uh, dying from overdoses. But the, the fact that uh, so many people are hooked on these uh, opioids is something that we got to continue to work on. All right? Thank you. Thank you.
Lieutenant Governor Tate Reeves with our Desiree Frazier. In other news on the opioid epidemic, Attorney General Jim Hood has joined 37 other attorneys general across the country, urging health insurers to help put an end to the nation's addiction to the drugs. Hood says a bipartisan coalition of his colleagues has sent a letter to America's health insurance plans, the National Association representing insurance companies. We sent a letter to insurance companies asking them to encourage their providers, doctors and others, to prescribe and get the insurance companies to pay for drugs other than opioids, try to discourage the use of opioids. But we found is that opioids are cheaper, and that's why the insurance companies hadn't agreed here to four. So we're pushing everywhere. I mean, we're pushing on the doctors, you know, to curb the prescriptions of uh, opioids. I mean, other painkillers work just as well. It's just the fact that these drug companies went out and, sold it as if it was some kind of new miracle drug and it's the same old stuff as morphine that's been addicting people back to the 1800s. We're trying to cut back on on the number of opioids that hit the street and that includes uh, insurance companies paying for them. So we're in hopes that they'll be good corporate citizens and do that rather than worry about the bottom line. Governor Phil Bryan says the state is making good progress. We're making really good progress, particularly with the medical profession and, and the pharmacists. Uh, both have come on, on board with us to make sure that we're controlling this where uh, some of the problem is beginning, and that's overutilization of opioids and, and similar type drugs. So uh, I think working with our medical community, working with our pharmacy, we're making great progress, and also the enforcement. Uh, the Bureau of Narcotics has done a remarkable job, I think, of out there catching the dealers, not, not the people who are trapped in this cycle of abuse and need help, but those that are out there dealing in this drugs, we are going to be unrelenting in trying to locate them and punish them for their crime. Governor Bryant also says he believes it's both a health and a criminal issue. I think it's a health issue, a mental health issue. Addiction is a disease. And so once we identify it as that, then we can start treating it in a proper manner. But those that are selling, transporting, and distributing drugs are criminals. And so we have to deal with it on both levels. According to the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, Mississippi ranks fifth in the nation per capita in the number of opioid prescriptions. Coming up, a national perspective on the proposed state takeover in the state's second largest district. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition. Mississippi education officials, parents, and students await Governor Phil Bryant's decision on a proposed state takeover. Last week, the State Board of Education voted to move forward with an overhaul of the Jackson Public School District. A group of Jackson Public School parents has asked a federal judge to stop the takeover before it has a chance to take effect. JPS leaders are against the move. MPB TV's At Issue takes a deep dive on the matter. Host Wilson Stribling is joined by national education reporter Jackie Mader of the Heckinger Report, a publication that covers innovation and inequality in education. She says takeovers do not generally work. 
There's little evidence that takeovers do work to create widespread long-term improvement, and that's both nationwide and in Mississippi. Um, and that's based off of um, you know various studies and reporting that I've done. Um, so, I mean, nationwide we see some school districts that have long been under control by the states, such as Newark in New Jersey or the Philadelphia schools in Pennsylvania. Um, you haven't seen much improvement there, and, and they're still struggling with a lot of issues, including financial issues. Um, and then in Mississippi, uh, at the Heckinger Report, we did a data analysis in 2014 to look at some of the school districts that were at that time under state takeover. And you see some growth in some academic areas. You see declines in others. It's very erratic. Um, there really wasn't a clear pattern of improvement. Um, some districts will say, you know, we've seen improvement in financial areas or administrative areas. And that's what research uh, has also found, that it, takeovers do seem to help more when you're looking at financial and administrative aspects rather than academic improvement. What about the size of a given district? The Jackson Public School District, in this case, is the second largest district in the state of Mississippi, much larger than any of the other districts that have been taken over in Mississippi in the past. Uh, does the size help determine whether it will be a success or not? Right. That's a good question. Um, so I haven't seen any research specifically looking at this. And when we did our data analysis, like you mentioned, they were all for smaller districts. Um, but common sense would tell you, as you know, what we've seen in uh, education reform in general, it's often easier to see improvement and make change in smaller districts than in bigger districts. You have fewer teachers, fewer staff members, often a smaller budget you're working with. Um, it can be very hard to you know, take over a very large district where you have a lot of moving parts and you're expecting to see pretty drastic change. What about money, the amount of funding a given school district receives from the state? Does that play a role here? Yeah, I, I mean, funding always plays a role when you're talking about making improvements and changes in districts. Um, when I was reporting on uh, the Mississippi districts in 2014 that were taken over, I asked the state if there was additional funding for those districts under state takeover. And at that time, there was no additional funding being given to those districts. So these are districts that are already underfunded because we know Mississippi has underfunded its schools for years, and they're expected to make pretty significant changes. They're trying to recruit and retain good teachers. They're trying to, um, you know, oftentimes buy new curriculum and resources, and it can be very hard to do that without funding. Well, in a case like Jackson Public Schools, where at least the State Board of Education believes that the le local leadership isn't cutting it, uh, and if the state should not step in, then what's the solution for a district like JPS? I, I think that's what people are trying to figure out, and I don't know if there's an answer. Um, you know, if you talk to parents at, at JPS, um, I've been hearing a lot of um, you know, we need a little more time. Um, you know, I think people would say we need more funding to try to make some of these changes happen in our district. Um, so I think those may be two of the things that the districts would argue for and say, you know, more time, more funding so we can get more resources. Maybe we can recruit and retain better teachers if we're able to offer some sort of incentive. Um, so those are all things that may be, you know, solutions for some districts so that hopefully you see some improvement before it gets to the point of being taken over. Jackie Mater, national education reporter for the Heckinger Report. Thank you for your insight. Thank you so much for having me.
Hear the full conversation on tonight's At Issue on MPB TV. The show airs at 7.30. In other news, we continue our coverage on the state of obesity in Mississippi. As one of the country's most obese states, according to the new Robert Wood Johnson Foundation study, experts say a healthy diet is key. Chef Rob Stinson and personal trainer Rob Halliburton tells us about the combination of healthy food and exercise and a winning combination. Typical Karen, the first thing that someone asks me is, how quick, how much can I get off, how long will this take? And I simply say it's a self-paced program. It takes as long as the human body responds. The healthier you eat, the faster it works. And then you've got the other side of the coin, which, you know, like in Rob's case, he came in with a lot of, you know, mobility issues and, and strength concerns because of an accident. I fractured my spine. I fractured my L5, and the choice was, do I lay around, do nothing, get fatter, get unhealthier, or do I really try to attack it? And Nolan has changed my life that way by creating the program that I did to drop weight, strengthen my back, and it's been amazing. It's hard to think of you as being overweight because you cook healthy. I mean, you always have healthy alternatives. Yeah, but I had gained so much weight because of inactivity. And, you know, as you get older, I'm 60 years old now, so it's very easy to get out of shape as you get older. Nolan, is it the same focus if you want to lose weight versus develop muscle? Absolutely. Good question, because I I look at it this way. You're going to do both at the same time. If uh, you're trying to lose weight, you build muscle, it burns more calories, it takes off more weight. You know, you just basically balance out what you're doing with your activities uh, when you're training, uh, if you're eating correctly and you're exercising and you're on a routine you will get the benefits and you will build a muscle and you'll build the type of muscle tissue you want. But do you have to lose weight first before you can build the the muscle tissue? Absolutely not. It kind of goes hand in hand. Um, Your first concern should be the intrinsic fats inside your body. You know, it's those little squishy fats you, when you peel the chicken skin off and you see the yellow (laughs) stuff in there, that's what's around your heart and your intestines and everything else. So you want to get rid of that first. And that's starting from the inside out. And eating healthy, uh, proper diet, enough water, enough rest, all those things add to the factors of building muscle tissue. Diet, you know, is going to help you with all of those. And then just getting your body to producing the chemicals that help you focus and feel better. Nolan, are they are they equally important, your diet and activity? I'd say more so the diet because even with out physical activity, and some people cannot exercise at the level that uh, somebody else can. Uh, the first step is to learning to eat correct um, or eat clean, and like Rob said, portion control. And once you're doing that, accompanying a good fitness activity or a program, there's several things you can do and, and find out online. I, I just tell people all the time, I caution them, stay away from the fads, stay away from these quick uh, diet programs that guarantee you 30 pounds here and all these you know wonderful benefits, but you take this pill. Basically, when you're putting your heart under that much duress with all these metabolic enhancers, you know, pre-workout, post-workout, and you're speeding up your heart rate, your blood pressure, your metabolic state unnaturally or advanced with a chemical, what happens is you wear stuff out. When someone is obese and they suddenly want to start eating right Mm -hmm. and they want to get, you know, in shape, they have to be a little bit careful about how they approach activity if they haven't done if they've been a couch potato for the last 10 years 
what do you recommend? I start them off like everyone else, just in a lower intensity level. And they are – I basically promote them to do the best you can. Do what we're doing. But if it's only five and we're doing 50, do your five. And I reinforce this with them. Uh, eventually, you're going to get to that 50. You're going to walk. Then you're going to jog. And then you're going to sprint. It, it is that simple. But is as little as you know, a month or two, people would be surprised what they can actually do. Nolan Halliburton is the owner of Radical Alteration and personal trainer. And Rob Stinson is the host of MPB's Fit to Eat. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Absolutely. Karen. Find out what the duo is cooking on Fit to Eat Saturday at 1.30 on MPB TV. That's 1.30 p.m. Coming up, three things to know about fall allergies. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. An evening of jazz can be just what the doctor ordered. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz, 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Fall officially begins today, bringing allergens to eyes and noses of many Mississippians. The city of Jackson has been consistently recognized by experts such as the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America as one of the most challenging places to live with fall allergies. According to a 2017 survey by the Consumer Healthcare Products Association, more than one in four Americans are now suffering from seasonal allergies and While most allergy sufferers experience symptoms in the spring, fall is the next most common allergy season with a spike in September. Dr. Lee Ann Ross is Associate Dean for Clinical Affairs and Professor of Pharmacy at the University of Mississippi and a pharmacist in Jackson. She tells us what to look for this fall allergy season. When we talk about allergies, it's important to differentiate because allergies can be seasonal, which they occur during the pollen seasons, or they can be perennial, meaning they occur throughout the year. Allergies that are seasonal are typically what we see in the spring, and many times the allergen or the particular pollen that someone might be sensitive to in the spring, say it could be tree pollen that's more prevalent in the spring, many times in the summer it's grass, and then around this time of year we tend to see a lot of ragweed. And so if someone is having symptoms in the spring, that doesn't necessarily mean they would have symptoms to that same pollen in the fall. But those are more the seasonal allergies that we're talking about, as opposed to maybe the ones that occur year-round that we call perennial. Those are more caused by, say, exposure to dust or mold or pet dander or things that are maybe inside the house. These are more outdoor things, but they, they can be different in spring and fall. If someone goes into the store, they're going to find a shelf full of different kinds of allergy medicines. How do we start to even know what we should consider? Well, we're fortunate that a number of the medications that are used to treat seasonal allergy symptoms are now over-the-counter. So when you do walk into the pharmacy, um, you do have access to a number of the medications that just a few years ago you may not have had access to in that way without a prescription. So there are different categories of medications. You have nasal steroids and antihistamines that can be used prophylactically. And I think that's an important thing to note here is when you're suffering from seasonal allergies during certain times of the year, it may be helpful to treat those prophylactically to prevent them rather than to wait and just treat them. So those nasal steroids or the um, antihistamines are good ways to do that often. 
Um, there are also decongestants that may be helpful that reduce some of the symptoms like the nasal congestion, but they really shouldn't, the decongestants shouldn't be used for long periods of time. So you may want to start with one of these, um, like a, a steroid spray um, as a first option. However, that steroid may take several hours or days for it to actually work, and you tend to see the greatest benefit from those um, if they're used continuously. Um, and so because you don't get that immediate relief potentially with it, um, an antihistamine may be another good choice as well. Is one better than the other, or do you just have to try them out to know which one works for you? Well, as a class, the second-generation antihistamines tend to be less sedating than some of the first-generation um, many times patients do have to try the second generation. There are some that are proposed to be less sedating than others. But this is an excellent time for patients to use their pharmacist as a resource as they're selecting that over-the-counter treatment option for their seasonal allergy. What about just warding off the symptoms altogether? What are some practices? There are certain precautions that can be taken during peak allergy times outside of medication therapy. Oftentimes, it's recommended that you close your windows, that you limit your time outdoors, especially in the morning when the counts for the pollen can be very high. Avoid drying your clothes outdoors because the pollen can stick to them. Also, taking a shower um, when you come in from outside, especially before bedtime, that may keep some of the allergens out of your hair and off your body, out of your bed when you're sleeping. Uh, so those are a few ideas and things that can, you can do outside of treating with medication. Dr. Leanne Ross is the Associate Dean for Clinical Affairs and Professor of Pharmacy at the University of Mississippi. Dr. Ross, thank you so very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening today to Mississippi Edition. I hope you'll join us again Monday morning at 830. Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Education Foundation, committed to helping more Mississippians obtain post-secondary credentials, college certificates, and degrees that lead to employment. More information about Woodward Hines Education Foundation at Woodward.